Because to be honest, Cody, something's missing here. There's a component that's missing in all this. And all the pages that are strapped up on the seed lab right now of, you know, words and images. This is Charles J. Tice. He's a visual and literary creative in Anchorage, Alaska, with an emphasis on photography and gonzo journalism. I keep thinking that there's a component that's missing and that that's heritage, so be it. If it's something else, so be that. But there's something, there's a tie-in, there's a definition, there's an underlying, there's a linchpin that's missing. And I don't know what that is yet. Um, and I want to discover it because once I do, everything I think will fall into place. Charles is currently in residence at the Anchorage Museum, working on a project called Artist Proof Number no. 6. It's a book that'll feature 100 photographs of strangers, assisted by a narrative. The writing is important, he says, probably the most important part of the project. So he works on a typewriter, because it's less about technical precision and more about getting his ideas onto the page. He says that the project is a love song, and that it's as much about discovering who he is as it is about representing his community. Most of the work that he does is a first-person narrative. He creates gonzo journalism, infusing himself into a story and becoming part of it. This was true when he quit a steady job to work on a political campaign that he believed in. It was true when he hitchhiked across the United States, photographing people and talking to them about their lives. It was true when he tracked down his birth mother, and it's true now. Because, more often than not, his life and his work are one and the same. They're forever intertwined and feeding off each other. So here he is, Charles J. Tice. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska and the Circumpolar North through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska. And I'll be your host. So the other day we were chatting and you said that you use adjectives to describe yourself. What are some of those adjectives? Citizen, creative, curator, organizer. Um, these are just a few of the, the adjectives I use uh, just to describe different, I think, you know, interests um, and expressions of, I, I guess, my art form, you know, yeah. How do you pick out those adjectives and do they ever change? They do change and they add, um, they, they, they come along. I think it's just through an expression of like over time um, when I get into something. Uh, actually, let me preface this. Um, <clears throat> Thoreau has a quote about the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation and die with their song and still inside it. It's die with their song still inside of them. Um, the only the first component of that is actually attributed to Thoreau. Um, I don't know where the additional come uh, came along, but then the third component of that is because they never find that one thing they were meant to be great at, mm -hmm. but they were meant to do. Um, and I have this theory, it's called my Lady Gaga theory, and I don't know if this is true. I read it somewhere, I never researched it, 
But my understanding is that Lady Gaga grew up with her grandparents, and in her grandparents' living room, there was a piano, right? Had she grown up with her parents, the question is, is that piano in the living room? Does she start playing piano at an early age? Does she ever find that one thing she was meant to be brilliant, talented at? Um, and this is one of the things that always kind of like, you know, I question, you know? So I'm always shifting gears, I'm always trying to find new avenues of expression of interest and I think you have to like for me I just have to do that because to do something I don't like doing merely for the purpose of continuing on to going and doing that same thing I don't like doing like making a living doing a job that I really don't like makes absolutely no sense to me um, so I have to be prepared at all costs to be willing to shift those gears um, into something that I think my skill set and my interests and my passion and my heart Mm -hmm. will be aligned with um, and that served me well so far so after a course of time of, of, of engaging in a process of doing something I will attach that adjective to what it is that I do um, because it's something that I'm confident in um, and that I'm engaged in so yes uh, that, that's that's my you know explanations so far on that. So using that theory, you know, your theory, the Lady Gaga theory, and how she had at her grandparents or her grandma's house, that piano downstairs, what's your piano? My camera. <clears throat> um, and, and this goes to the whole, um, you know, you start thinking about this. Right around, I want to say it was 2000. 11? Wait, 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 no, no, no. Let's back that up a little bit further. Jeez. Um, yeah, right around 2011, um, Instagram came out. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> right, right at the beginning of Instagram, basically, <clears throat> it was a cell phone photo purist community. If you were basically uploading via like a digital, you're an outcast, like you're not in the club, right? Basically, people wanted to see what you're doing with your uh, cell phone camera, like how you're making noise with that, right? And what it did is essentially, right around that time too also, um, people started figuring out that these cell phone cameras like, well, you know, getting some decent results from these things, right? Mm -hmm. But the ubiquity of putting cameras in every single person's hands basically gave people an access to a creative avenue that if you wanted to be a photographer or you know a camera person in the past, you had to go get your camera, you had to carry it around with you, you had to be like cognizant of being in the moment to take those images and stuff like that. All of a sudden that changed. And what it did basically is it introduced the camera to so many different people. Um, and pe some people found out like, I'm, I'm garbage at taking photos. And some people found out like, <laughs> hey, I'm actually pretty good at this. Yeah. Let me continue on and keep pressing it forward and forward and forward. And through that motion, um, they found something that they were passionately engaged with just because of the access to it. Um, now, for me, you know, my, my medium came to me a bit earlier. Uh, I would say it was 2008 um, when I kind of really settled in on photography. At the time, I was working for... President Obama's um, uh, election campaign here in Alaska. I was working with the Anchorage team and 
the DNC at the time, or the Democratic National Committee, had decided to play this 50-state strategy. And they sent staffers to the, you know, the far stretches of uh, you know, uh, the state or the, the, the country, um, which they really don't do. They, they play for the big states, you know, or the, the, you know, the swing states. Um, so we had staffers up here in Alaska. And I said, I was sitting on my couch in January of 2020, uh, 2008, and I heard Obama get up on stage, and uh, he had just won the Iowa caucus. And he was, you know, hope is what led abandoned colonists to rise up against an empire, what led the greatest of generations. And he just kept going on. I was like, who talks like this anymore? Nobody. And I said to myself then when I was watching that, if he comes up here, I'm in. Mm -hmm. So sure enough, he came up here in the summer of 2008. Uh, and I walked in to the Obama campaign headquarters opening. Uh, I asked about a job. I interviewed the next day. I got hired on the spot. And I went and quit the $70,000 job I was making a year and took that one and knowing that it was going to end in about like four or five months. Um, <clears throat> so about two months into that campaign, uh, and a brilliant move by John McCain, he announced Sarah Palin, and I, I say this, it was kind of a quasi-brilliant move, uh, right after Barack gave his big DNC speech in Denver. Um, like there was a billion people packed in that stadium. I mean, it was just glorious. I mean, just like, you know, the pomp and circumstance, the pageantry. Um, he had just given that acceptance speech for the Democratic nomination. And then before everybody got a chance to wake up in the morning and like, like regale and like, you know, this moment of magic, mm -hmm. John McCain announced Sarah Palin and everybody was like thrown aback, like, oh, you know, who's Sarah Palin? And all of a sudden the coverage went not from Barack's, you know, speech, but to Sarah Palin. And within three days, the entire Alaska campaign had disbanded. Now they gave us the option. They said, all the Alaska staffers, can stay here and continue on, or they can go to a state, you know, a, a, another state. And I was in that campaign to effect change, or to make some sort of difference, you know, be an idealist. And I said, I wanna go, um, sign me up. And because thinking back, a place like Nevada, had Nevada gone for Kerry in 2004 versus Bush, that's the difference in the election right there. That's how close it was. Mm -hmm. So I said, sign me up. I want to go to a, you know, an important state. Sure enough, they send me to Las Vegas, Nevada. <laughs> so like <laughs> three days later, I land in Las Vegas, Nevada, the same day that Sarah Palin pushes forward the, uh, the PFD and an energy rebate um, early. So that day that I landed, I got $3,200 like dropped into my bank account and I'm at the Wynn Casino that night because we had the day off because uh, we had just landed there. <clears throat> and I'm playing poker at the 1-2 the for the first time ever in Las Vegas. Now, I was trying to be like tight with my money, so I pulled $60 out, sat down at the table, and the guy said it's a minimum $100 buy-in. I had just paid a $12, you know, ATM fee. And I was like, oh you know, geez, I got to go pay this again, right? So I wanted to play. So I paid another $12 fee and I sat down with the proper $100. About an hour, hour and a half later, I stand up with about $450 in my pocket, you know, mm -hmm. or $450 in chips and I go cash them out. The next day, I visit a field office in um, Vegas and Governor Bill Richardson of New Mexico was set to come in and, you know, give a speech at the field office and hang out. I said, hey, I like Bill Richardson. 
I want to get a photo with him. So there just happened to be a radio shack in the little strip mall where the field office was. So I walked over there and I bought my first digital camera. Okay. And that's essentially how I, uh, you know, found my medium. Um, at the time, you know, we took those photos and everything and I took a few photos over the campaign, but I hadn't really discovered the medium medium. Like I hadn't really discovered the potential uh, or where I was with that. And then I think it was basically just forcing myself to kind of get into it. Um, but I'll let that be another story if, if that is a story. But the, that's essentially kind of like, you know, how I discovered photography, how I started getting into it. Um, and it was just basically after the campaign had kind of ended that I really just kind of, I had to force feed myself a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, and the reason I did that was because I liked and I enjoyed doing it. Um, it was, it, in my images at the beginning, um, they weren't very good. Uh, I look back at them now and I'm like, whew, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you have to go through that process and I think if you enjoy yeah. doing it, it's not really necessarily like um, a results-oriented process, but basically it's just a process of, is it something that you enjoy doing and you like doing? If so, do that and don't really worry about like what the other people think, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I got into photography. That's how I found my medium and that's basically been with me always in my back pocket always in you know you know at the side of my hip you know or hanging around my neck that's been basically you know my medium how did you feel about that new entry point for photography you know the one that you attributed to instagram when it came out in 2010 clarify that a bit like before before you were talking about the accessibility, right? You had to go get the camera. You had to uh, maybe get an SD card. You had to get all of these these different accessories. But but in 2010, you know, you had Instagram really elevating digital photography, right? And and you could take those photos with this thing that pretty much everybody had in their pocket. I was aware of all that and I was aware of the digital photography at the time, like, you know, I had a DSLR, but something, something was missing and um, I ended up meeting with this guy, I, I don't recall his, you know, moniker, but I think he went by Vegas. Um, I met him off of Craigslist, he was uh, a camera guy, a photographer. And he had some cameras that he was selling on Craigslist. And I went and met him in front of the, the, the Kaladi Brothers Coffee and, the, and then Spinard. And uh, he opened his trunk and he had all these cameras and everything like that. And he sold me one first film camera. It was a Nikon F3. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he gave me a lens. I forget which lens it was at the point at that time. In retrospect, a lot of people ask me, you know, um, you know oh, oh, I want to get into photography. I want to do this and everything. You know, I, I want to be, a, you know, like, and I oftentimes now will point to my cell phone camera like if you have this you you can do damage like you can you know photograph a lot mm-hmm. and then when you get to the you know maximum point of where like you know for sure like I need this 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 because my cell phone camera just isn't up to that you know then you're somewhere but until you're actually like you know there's really no reason to go out and do that anymore but uh, or, you know, buy a, you know, the, the big fancy, you know, the, the camera just because you're interested in something. Um, sure, it might inspire you a little bit, you know, give you that little extra bit of enthusiasm because now you got the big camera. 
Mm-hmm. But in retrospect of thinking about film and film photography, for a couple of years, I shot the Nikon F3 and then later Hasselblad. Um, I would tell people now, if you had an opportunity, or if, if you want to get good at this, you're not going to go to school for it, shoot film if you're just getting into it. And shoot it exclusively. And do it for like a couple of years. Because what you're going to find out is this. Is that the first 36 images that you take off that roll and go and get developed, if you can find a place that will develop it for you, they're going to come back to you and after you pay, you know, for the, the processing and the prints, if you get the prints or the disc and everything, which kind of is self-defeatist in a way, but um, if you do all that and everything, all of a sudden you're paying, you know, 75 cents per image or like, you know, up to $2, 250 for the Hasselblad images. You're going to look at all those images and you're like, these suck. These are terrible. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I just paid like a dollar a photograph like to take this. Like, this is insanity. Yeah. Like, why am I doing this? So the next time you go and shoot, all of a sudden you're going to be thinking about like, well, maybe I'll think about this one again. And like, uh, the, the things. And then you start seeing things in your head and it forces you to, you know, kind of think for my style anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, about composition, about like, you know, depth of field, about shutter speeds, about how you're going to, and you kind of get into that like old school groove of things of like, you know, because you can't look at the image. You can't just spray and pray as they call it in the photo world and delete, 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 delete. Mm-hmm. What you shot is what you got and you have to stand on that or just not show it at all. And if you're not showing it at all, then you've got some real personal questions to answer with yourself am I really into this or not? Uh, do mm-hmm. I have an eye for this or not? And you either, you know, get really good or you get out pretty quickly if you do that. Um, so that's kind of like one of the things I, I, you know, will tell people, you know, go back, shoot film, shoot nothing but film and uh, see where you're at. Because I think the, the digital stuff, it's just so, you know, it's right there. And yeah. uh, um, it doesn't, Unless you're really engaged, it really doesn't force you to grow. Did you have a point when you realized that you were really into it, that you were really into photography? Yeah, it's one of those moments that I don't really like talking about, but I guess for the point of the, uh, you know, this. Okay, so there's two thoughts here. Okay. It doesn't really matter what medium you're in. People want to feel validated by their work. They want people to respond to their work in a positive way. Um, they want to feel that what they're producing is of value, is, uh, is good. Um, and I think that avenue was the first avenue I went down, right? It's like, boom, I shot it. I got it in the can. I know I got it in the can. Like, let's put it out into the world and everything like that. And let me just sit back and like, you know, collect, you know, the feedback, you know, it's um, not a good way to do business um, that I later discovered. Um, The other part is, the other thought on this is the Vivian Myers of the world. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar or the, I'll just say it because I'm sure not all the audience is familiar, but Vivian Meyer was a photographer um, who photographed mostly in the Midwest in the 60s, 50s, and, and 70s. Um, and she was a nanny um, who, you know, lived with the family and everything and kind of very closed up, secretive and everything like that. But low-key, she was a photographer. 
And what she did is basically just go around working with like, you know, a Rolleiflex, you know, top down view camera taking street photos. And she was discovered mm -hmm. after her death in an East Data sale by a gentleman, um, Madoff, I believe his name was, um, um, who bought her negatives that were just in the trunk. And, you know, I think he paid $400 for it. And basically what he ended up finding, like when he started scanning some of the negatives is like, Jesus, like, these are like brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a, an entire collection of work that this person had just gone and photographed for the sake of doing it, just because they wanted to do it and everything. Not because of the likes or the appreciation or the feedback or anything like that. Just because they loved doing it. And to me, that's a whole nother level. Is to just do it for the sake of doing it mm -hmm. and not worry about whatever the people think. Because now, and you know, looking back at it, like it's a brilliant body work. Um, like her work is, uh, you know, there was a lot of things going around, like finding Vivian Meyer. Um, and... Like, I, I appreciate street photography. That's kind of where I got my chops um, from. And, uh, yeah, it just... Um, so there's really two thoughts on that um, thing. And it, it kind of getting the appreciation, I, came, I think, kind of came with the... What kept pushing me forward was, I think, the dopamine kick from, uh, you know, people liking the photographs that I put, you know... Um, put out and even now looking back at those photographs that people liked back then I was like oh god man really <laughs> <laughs> well you're always going to be your worst critic right yeah no you're always going to be your worst critic unless you're shooting for somebody else and then they're your worst critic you know uh, <laughs> well I mean I want them to be my worst critic right so there, there's just a couple different things on that like you're shooting um, for somebody or, or, or you know, you're taking images of them and I know personally, like, like oh, boom, 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 this, this one, this one, this one, this one, and this one, you know. And it can be completely the opposite on, mm -hmm. on their, you know, standpoint of like, actually, I like this one. I'm like, really? That one's like, oh, that one's not very good. But that's what they like, right? Um, so when shooting for somebody else or shooting for a client or anything, um, my number one thing is like, hey, tell me where you're really at. You're not going to hurt my feelings because I want to make sure that we get you the images that you really enjoy and everything. I just don't want to see because like early on my crazy shoot for somebody and if they don't post the images, you're like, ah, no, not that. <laughs> but they'll mm. tell you like, you know, to your face, oh, good, thanks, Charles, like, blah, blah, you know. So it was a learning process for me to be like understand what they're really saying. Um, so, hey, you know, um, if they go straight up and everything like that, boom, you know fantastic you know I did good mm -hmm. um, but if not then you know I, I started to decipher that language and everything and kind of addressing it head-on so when did you start pursuing photography out of passion I think when I started uh, pursuing is when I decided to hitchhike across the US mm. okay so, um, you know <clears throat> Uh, my bio talks about being a photographer, being into gonzo journalism, and I'm thinking about like definitively like, you know, wrapping some sort of definition around what it is that I do. It's that most of the stuff that I do is basically like a first person narrative, whether it's running an art studio or uh, doing the body of work that I'm currently working on. Um, or hitchhiking across the U.S., mm -hmm. um, I always try to tell the story or the narrative from a first-person perspective. 
I am engaged in a story. Rarely do I come things, uh, at things from an objective standpoint of view um, because I can't. Um, it's not fair. Uh, so I infuse myself with my work um, and it presents itself as such. Um, so there's always that element of me, whether it's, you know, at the forefront or kind of in the background. Um, but Hitchhiking Across the U.S. was one of those things where I realized kind of for the first time is that I'm always inspired by new visuals, um, new things. And whether the image had probably been taken a billion times before me and the image that I was taking was cliche, it just was like, boom, it's like right there. And it's just like, I mean, I'm sure if somebody could look at me as I'm looking at these new visuals and they could describe what they saw in me, like, I, I could just imagine, like, you know, how my eyes light up or, like, how I'm just engaged and just, like, boom, here we are, here we are, here we are, here we are, like, uh, you know, it just, it's just, once that started happening, once I started, like, being in um, the moment and uh, living the moment, but also realizing I'm docking the moment, but it's just new and it's interesting, it's fascinating. That's kind of like when I realized like, yeah, like this is, this is uh, something I'm, I'm passionate about. Can you tell me about hitchhiking across the States? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like that laugh. You know, I have a lot of different personas. Um, hitchhiker is one of those. Um, it's kind of a rougher, brash exterior that wears a smile on its face because you got to you know you're meeting all these strangers all the time and you know you're engaging with them and you know it <clears throat> I'm always about being in the moment and experiencing the moment and I don't really relay that when I'm thinking about it or, or when I'm in the moment like verbally but I'm aware of it because no matter where you're at, what you're doing or anything like that, there's going to come a time where you're going to think back and you're going to miss that moment. Um, whatever it is you were doing, uh, like the Obama campaign, I just think about going back there and everything like that and just being present in that moment mm -hmm. and what I was doing and just like the, the, the engaged excitedness of just, you know, the enthusiasm, uh, the good quality people, all the people just rose up. Um, and then that moment is gone now. But mm -hmm. being present in that moment, I can recollect, uh, uh, re-recall a lot of those moments, just being engaged in it. Um, the same thing with that. It's like I realized this is one of those moments, like, because hitchhiking is, you know, um, it's, it's not an easy sport. Um, a couple of different things. It, it puts you in the shoes of people, a lot of people look down on. Um, particularly the the homeless community. I, I don't look at at all. Um, and this is a tangent. You know, recently I've kind of engaged with a couple of people who are have been photographing homeless individuals, um, and there's I follow one particular forum and everything and. In this forum, some people have posted like, you know, like, oh, look what I did. I took a pretty photo of a, a homeless person. I'm like, uh, think about why you're doing that mm -hmm. and why you're presenting a person kind of at a very low point in their life. Um, however, 
there's ways around that, um, that kind of that moral question or the ethical question, mm -hmm. right? Which is to say, like, I photograph everybody. If I see it and it catches my eye, I'm photographing it. It doesn't matter whether you're rich, you're poor or anything like that. That's one, right? Just to say you're an asshole is another two. Um, like, and the third is just like, this is what I'm focused on. This is like my thesis. This is this because when you present that body of work, um, it does provide a unique perspective. Um, because for the first time, people who are viewing that work, many of them can actually look at these individuals and their state of condition and not feel that steely gaze coming back at them that questions to themselves like who they are or how much they care or how much they empathize, you know. Um, that's one of the things because you can now look at that person and photograph and, and see the scene um, and not have to worry about that kind of like that kickback, that, that kickback that you feel in live time. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of how I felt when you're holding the sign, you know, thumbing for a new ride, you know. Um, it, it puts you in those shoes all of a sudden. I see people when they look at me. I see the people who flip me off, you know, I see the people who kind of look down on you. And then I see the people, and this almost always, the people who pick you up are people who've been on that road before. Um, and a lot of times they'll do it with a smile and like, hey, how's it going, man? Because like some of these people are like the, the realest down-earth people that you're ever going to meet. Um, who actually go out of their way to, you know, like, can I get you anything? Or you need any money or anything like that? Like, I don't know. I usually just picked me off the road like, you know, half an hour ago. Mm -hmm. And you're offering me these, you know, these niceties and everything. And um, it's humbling. It's a humbling experience. Um, I'm going out and I'm thinking like in my head, like we're gonna, we're gonna make images. That this is what we're doing and everything. Well, my pack was 50 pounds. And what I soon discovered was the process was so much more engaging than the actual, the photographic output or the creative output. Not that I didn't take images or anything, but what I realized is like, you know, like, like shit, man, you're out here on the road, like on your own, like you have to be like very careful, um, like not only who you pick what rides or where you end up or how you look or present yourself, mm -hmm. you know, um, but also safety at night. It's like, where are you going to camp? Like, where are you going to, you know, so it very quickly became this like process of like, you know, like discovering how you actually do this and making it work and going from there. Mm -hmm. So went from uh, Seattle all the way down to uh, San Francisco, uh, San Francisco all the way into uh, Denver, Colorado. Colorado all the way back into, uh, you know, um, back inwards, or Denver, all the way back inwards and uh, down through uh, New Mexico and Phoenix um, and some places right there. It was, I, I think I ended up with like somewhere in the neighborhood of like 60 different rides. Um, sometimes they were short and everything, but I soon learned the language and, you know, it was one of those things where I just, after a while, I just became comfortable with. Um, I... You know, I kind of, again, have that kind of rough exterior um, that can kind of live like that. Um, it also went back to one of those core things that I've always thought about, too. I was like, 
I was a minimalist. Um, I just try to repaint that even though like I'm <laughs> not so good at it anymore. But uh, I had these minimalist ideas of just being able to be free by not being owned um, by the things that you end up owning or end up kind of owning, but you're continuing to pay on. Because it's one of the things with you know, society, it's like they want you to buy in. Once you buy in, you buy in on credit. And if you're buying in on credit, basically, well, you're, you're bought in because now you got to keep working and keep doing this whole thing that basically is paying off those bills and everything. I didn't like that notion so much. Um, and I don't like that notion. I haven't had a credit card since I was 18. I had one credit card in my life and, you know, I ended up, I think it was for like Zales or K-Jewelers or something like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what a weird credit card to have. Uh, those, are my, those are my gold chain days, you know? You know, you said that you eventually caught on to the language of being on the road. What does that language sound like? Um, it's okay. So the language is often a lot of times it's an unspoken language. Mm -hmm. um, right. So a couple of different things to like, you know, I had a pair of shades and like realizing that Shades may not be the best way to uh, get picked up. Like wearing big, dark, heavy pair of shades and everything. People want to see your eyes. Like even if they're rolling by at like 30, 40 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll take those off. Uh, well, one of the other things too, and this is kind of trappy, but uh, you know, I had this white rain jacket that was a North Face jacket. So if I was really desperate for a ride, I'd throw that thing on and I'd just crack a smile and it, I mean, we're talking about minutes here for a ride because they see this different thing all of a sudden, right? Um, also, the, the, the language of hitchhiking, you know, if you take your, uh, your, your thumb and your index finger and you kind of like squeeze them together, kind of indicate like very small and everything like that, mm -hmm. just indicates that the person is going like a short distance, right? Um, and a lot of people would flash that to me. They're just like, hey, I'm just going a short distance, um, you know, like usually like two miles, so like picking you up. Like, I see you, I would pick you up, but I'm just really, I'm only going two miles down the street. Like, it's not really worth it mm -hmm. um, to pick you up. Uh, so, so there's a lot of that. Um, and just kind of like being able to communicate with the people that are out on the road or communicate with uh, um, the people who pick you up. Um, so th there's, there's a lot of that in there. Um, Presenting yourself in a certain way. Uh, <clears throat> there's a road I was, I was uh, kind of uh, hung out on the outskirts of uh, Reno 
and uh, I'd spent the day, uh, well, I found this uh, hostel. Um, this is the first time I found couchsurfing.com. So I found couchsurfing.com and I got no profile. I got nothing. But I got a narrative and I got a story and I can communicate that to people. And uh, I was kind of, some people told me, like, you don't want to be camping out, like, you know, like whether it's on the fringe or anywhere else, like by yourself in a tent, like here in Reno. And I was like, I believe you. And so, I mean, I, I wasn't broke. I had money in the bank, but not a lot, you know. So every purchase or every, you know, hostel stay, you know, they added up. Mm-hmm. But I found this, like, really interesting hostel kind of like on the uh, west end of uh, uh, Reno, which is like this 90s eclectic mix of, like, hostel plus, like, memorabilia art galleries of 90s pop rock. So we were talking about, like, Alanis Morissette, Gwen Stefani, Sheryl Crow. You go in there and it's, like, all this, like, you know, it's, like, you know, like, photos and memorabilia and stuff. It was, like, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had a bar, so when I got there, you know, she served me up a drink and everything. And, uh, you know, but prior to that, I had been at the Starbucks because they have free internet. Um, I was sending out all these messages on couchsurfing.com saying, hey, this is my situation. This is where I'm at. And I should you not. I'm sitting there lying in this, like, bunk bed in this hostel. And all of a sudden, my phone's like, bing, bing. <laughs> you know, I started looking mm-hmm. at these messages yeah. from, uh, you know, couchsurfing.com. He's like, hey, I'm at the bar right now, but where are you at? I'm coming to pick you up. Uh, I was like, boom, boom, boom. All these people are like, I gotcha, I gotcha, I gotcha. I was like, no way. Uh, so, I mean, I was on couchsurfing.com from there on in. But to go back to the point is like, uh, <clears throat> um, anyway, I leave there and uh, this kid misses his flight. Uh, so he's the only other person in the room that entire night. And... Uh, like, his alarm clock goes off, like, four or five different times, and he keeps snoozing and everything like that. And then eventually I hear, oh, shit! And <laughs> boom, just, like, a whole bunch of rustling around and everything like that. And, uh, like, uh, um, he just, you know, takes off and everything. And sure enough, about an hour later, he's back. He had missed his flight and everything. Anyway, he had a joint, and he ended up, uh, we ended up getting stoned together. And I spent the wrong day hitchhiking out on the wrong side of uh, Reno. Mm-hmm. So I figured out, like, oh, Jesus Christ. Um, like, <laughs> so I ended up going to the right side of Reno. But by the time I had gotten there, we were talking about, it was like, you know, four in the afternoon. And, you know, the sun is starting to settle. And I'm, like, in this kind of, like, this open area on the outskirts and everything of, like, just, like, all right, now this is starting to get, like, you know, you got to start figuring things out. You got to start being really serious here. Um, and anyway, after a ride about 19 miles down the road, and this is really weird too. It was like uh, there was some guy who ended up trying to tag along with me and everything, and uh, I was like, "No, man! Like I'm better hitchhiking off my own because not only am I okay representing myself, but I don't feel okay representing you. Like I'm better off on myself. Like you're not you're mm-hmm. not up to snuff, man." Um, <clears throat> anyway, this guy picked me up, and then out of nowhere, this guy who'd been trailing me along just pops up out of the blue and everything, and um, jumps in on my ride and everything, and the guy is kind of like a little nervous, and uh, so he drops me off at this gas station, us off, about 10 miles up the road, and now I'm really on the outskirts, like there's nothing there, like for miles, and uh, so there I am, like on the corner on the outskirts of this uh, gas station, and uh, um, thinking like, where am I going to camp, like I'm, there's some high ground over here where I might go up to, and it's, you know, kind of out of view once you get to the top. And I'm just kind of looking at everything and uh, boom, look down and all of a sudden there's this like, you know, white 
Camry, like old, old, old thing and everything. And it's like this middle-aged man. He's like, where are you going? And I just said, east. And he said, me too. And I was like, how far are you going? I was like, well, I'm trying to get to, uh, you know, Denver. And he's like, that's where I'm going too. Anyway, hmm. he asked me if I had any weapons or, you know, anything like that. And I was like, no. I was like, of course I do, but I'm not going to tell him that. <laughs> <laughs> like, just try something. Um, but this is one of the more engaging things that I had, even though I was struggling. Like, this guy, this, like, you know, 50-year-old guy and everything, was done with his present life and everything like that. And he would tell me over the course of the night as we made it into uh, Colorado that he had been on this road before and that he had picked up hitchhikers before. And each time, though, he would end up dropping a hitchhiker off at a place that they didn't really want to be dropped off at, and he would just turn back and go home, right? So he introduced me to the word reconnoiter. And uh, throughout the night, he would pull off somewhere to do some, uh, but he would say, like, I want to reconnoiter the area and everything. Now, reconnoiter is basically a French term. It basically is like a uh, kind of like scout the lay of the land. It's kind of like a military term okay. and everything. Um, and six different times that day, uh, night, night and day, he would drop me off to, quote unquote, reconnoiter the area. I would take a you know, breather or whatever you know, he would say and everything. And each time, I would never know if he was going to come back or not, right? But once I found that out the first time, Oh, best believe, I kind of leaned in on him, too, and gave him my best, like, fired up, get ready to go type speech. Like, you know, this is, this is where you have to go. This is, you know, you're done with that. Like, because my interest was getting to Denver, right? And if I got to pump this guy up, you know, and just like, you know, just like, dude, this is where you. But I also felt authentically that I was doing the right thing for him. Um, because he had told me he had dropped people off in Elko. He had dropped people off here, here, here. But he had never made it, you know. All to, to Denver. He just kept turning back, kept turning back, kept turning back. So it became a thing where I was like, we're determined. I'm determined to make sure, basically, in your head that I get you fired up enough. Like, basically, you go and you find this new experience and everything. And the words that I have now in my vocabulary that I can piece together and everything like that weren't anything close. Or, uh, the words then weren't anything close to what I have now. Um, in what way? In what way? In the sense that, like, now... Like that, that shift gear mentality of basically going forward, finding your passion, engaging in that and everything. Those are much more, I, I can speak those a lot better than I could in 2011 uh, and, and so forth. Um, but I knew it was in my heart that like, like what you're doing is right, but you just, you haven't broken through that. And here's this person who's basically doing that. Like I'm going out here and I'm hitchhiking across the U.S. specifically just for sport. Uh, who does that? I mean... Like, you have to be willing to kind of engage in those things to kind of find something that you're interested and passionate about. Um, that also kind of fits with what you're doing. So basically, that was my whole thing to him. Like, I'm giving him this pet talk this entire time. But it wasn't from a point of, like, complete self-interest. But I actually believe that getting him to Denver was um, as important as me getting to Denver, too. Um, hmm. So we made it to Denver. Then he asked for my phone number, and of course I didn't give it to him, and like we never talked again. But it was just a little bit too weird for me. Uh, the whole dropping me off like six different times, different spaces, and not knowing if he was ever going to come back. Um. You know, I, I have a quick question about that guy. So, so this guy 
if if I am interpreting this or if I'm hearing this correctly, he had in the past picked up people who were hitchhiking and then he would drop them off where they didn't want to be because he maybe mentally, maybe spiritually, like couldn't go any further. But with your trip, you were giving him these talks to help him, you know, usher along to Denver. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, essentially that's what it was. It's, you know, this wild eyed optimist, you know, just happens to sit in your car. Um, and you tell me your story and you also tell me at the same time, like, Hey, this is, you know, I've had these problems in the past. It's almost like he needed that. He was asking for that, you know? Um, mm -hmm. It was almost like a kindred spirit. Yeah. And I was like, this, this is like a perfect match in a sense. Like you need that extra push and I need to get here. It's like, this is a very symbiotic relationship. Let's see what I can do. And it, even though it was the middle of the night, you know, um, and it was one of those other things too. It really made me think like, um, about the safety, right? Uh, and this is one of the things I attributed to my photography. Um, I think one of the things that got me into photography as well, too, is having a broken heart. Um, and I think that's kind of when uh, things started changing for me a little bit. Because what I started to notice was the things that people don't notice. Mm -hmm. um, those little moments, those tiny moments that people walk by every single day. Um, and it's just right there. And it's magic and it's just like, you know, you see it, but you're not seeing it. Um, and I think that's kind of the imagery that like, you know, I, I would go after at the onset is like, you know, those unnoticed moments. Um, and it would start with a broken heart because all of a sudden, like things kind of just slow down for me. I would see people, um, see an old couple holding hands. Um, and then not only would I think about that, but I would think about like, composition and lighting and like you know the environment as a whole and everything mm -hmm. and all of a sudden like in my head just things like started clicking like there's the photograph like there's the composition and everything and it's like the best way I can describe it and is if you've watched movies with like you know like uh, a beautiful mind like let's say um, um, I think his name was Nash um, <clears throat> all these things will start popping up, these mathematical equations start popping up in his minds and everything, and like things will start connecting and everything. Mm -hmm. That's the same way when I think about like imagery. Like a lot of times like I will see in this like almost this robotic fashion of like composition and like, you know, there's a square, there's a, you know, boom, boom, boom. You know, if I, I will, it, it's, it's gotta be awkward to people like every once in a while because I'll make movements like crouching down or like leaning in and everything just so I can get a better <laughs> perspective of how things are. Yeah. But I don't have a camera in my hand. So I'll be like, what's this guy doing and everything like that? I'm like taking a mental photograph in my head right now. I'm just like, yeah. boom, I see it. I'm going to photograph it, you know? Um, and I'll do that just because I see the compositions and everything. But I think it really things kind of like just kind of picked up in those moments and everything. And for a long time, that's kind of the stuff I went after, you know? Um, when I think about my work and stuff like that, my work is basically a linear narrative of who I am. It's a representation of like my life mm -hmm. um, and my experiences. Um, rarely, again, as it's a very an objective point of view, it's a subjective point of view. And I try to introduce that with words. Mm -hmm. You know, you wrote this post on social media a while back that talks about your heritage 
about how when you were one, you were adopted and how you grew up in New Orleans and how there was a point in your life when you found your birth mother. Do you mind telling that story at all? Not at all. Um, And I think this is actually, uh, as an artist, like um, as a creative, and to be honest with you, uh, Cody, like I, I, for the longest time, struggled with um, describing myself or using the adjective artist. Um, But, you know, a lot of, a lot of artists and creatives intertwine their heritage um, through their work. It, it comes out somehow. I don't have that. And I'm wondering if I did, would it change anything? I mean, it would have to, right? Um, for good or ill. But I was adopted when I was one. I've never known my birth parents. Um, and by and large, like, it's never been one of those things that I was overly concerned with discovering. I've had peaks of interest where, you know, when I was mid-20s, uh, early 20s, I was still going to uh, college, that uh, I had this peak of interest and I was like, we're going to figure this thing out. So I spent a couple of days and figured things out and everything like that and all, you know, through the power of the internet, excuse me, I was able to come down to uh, one name, um, one phone number of a person um, who by name, by age, and by basically where they live, fit my mother's description. Um, And I said, all right, well, here we go. Uh, And so I made that phone call. And a woman answered and I essentially, you know, said, hi, you don't know me, but um, I had a question, you know, um, I asked her if my date of birth meant anything to her Uh, uh, and she said it did. And at that moment, like, it's just... I, I I didn't even feel anything yet, but both my eyes just like completely watered up. Like, I mean, I hadn't even felt anything yet. Like, I mean, the, any feeling had not even resonated with yet, but just like my body kind of like instinctively knew and just like, and then the emotional rush kind of like hit me and there's like this pause. And like, I just recall like these tears just like started like slow motion, like splashing, like, on the table below me and everything. And like, I asked like, you know, what's, what do they, what does it mean? Uh, and just like, that's the day I got married. And I said, is there anything else? And she said, no. I don't recall much of the conversation after that, but there wasn't much of a conversation. And I ended up hanging up the phone and in retrospect, like even way long before, like that was the first and who knows, maybe only time I've ever actually had a conversation with my biological mother. Um, I just assumed that my, that she at the time 
wasn't prepared to have that phone call. Um, because how else can I, a person living in Alaska, narrow down a, a phone number, a name that matches the date of my birth, um, and have that conversation with a person who's like, yeah, that date actually means something to me. Mm-hmm. And it's just the, 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 it's like astronomical. Like that, that would be like, that's the only reason, <laughs> you know, um, it just hits me as like, this is the person who just wasn't ready to have that conversation yet. And really all I wanted to know was what my heritage was. Like, where did I get this curly hair from? Where did I get this brown skin from? Like, who were my people? Um, it wasn't that I needed to have like a relationship. It's just one of those questions like, I think it's been in like a core thesis to all my work is like exploration. Um, so, uh, geez. And I, I can't do this. I have to do this the way I have to do this. Mm-hmm. I can't do it. I, nobody, when I made that post, why don't you just jump on 21 and me or this or this and everything like that? That's not how I roll. Um, I have to do it in the way that I have to do it, which is through a creative process, um, which is to pack up the van, drift down, and find her. And ask her face to face and if I can't find her ask another question ask that question of for the millions of people who are absent our signs a heritage our cultural background where does their story begin where does their history begin Mm-hmm. And that's an exploration of people, which I think is something that I want to do regardless. Um, but it would also signify like a change, I think, uh, in me to know that. Because to be honest, Cody, something's missing here. There's a component that's missing in all this. And all the pages that are strapped up on the seed lab right now of, you know, words and images and everything. I keep thinking that there's a component that's missing and that that's heritage, so be it. If it's something else, so be that. But there's something, there's a tie-in, there's a definition, there's an underlying, there's a linchpin that's missing. And I don't know what that is yet. Um, And I wanna discover it because once I do, everything I think will fall into place in terms of what it is, this is. I mean, I think a creator creates and an artist creates with an idea of like presentation in mind or maybe not in mind because I hate creating stuff with like presentation in mind, but it's cohesive. Uh, An artist creates with cohesiveness. Um, My presentation tends to be erratic and sporadic. Um, 
so yeah, these are these are very important questions. I think I need to ask, answer myself um, going forward, and I intend to. Um, that's not my project. My project right now is artist proof number six, and uh, you know I think it's probably going to be my uh, you know my love song to. Uh, my community and what it is that I do. Um, so I've been working diligently on that. Um, and this is the idea of like putting a book together um, and presenting a body of work that's been compiled over the last several years. Um, but almost it's a prelude to, you know, another question. You know, that actually is my next line of questioning, but I had this other question that I just thought of. And I wonder if you think you're getting closer to finding that answer that you're looking for, you know, that, that possibly involves heritage. Um, yes, I am because it's on the forefront of my design of what I want to do and what I want to explore. Um, but, you know, I realized that there are like certain projects and components and things like that that require your full attention, your full dedication and everything. And that's another one. I can't. And who's to say? <clears throat> Artist proof to me, number six basically is an embodiment of community, but it's also an embodiment of like who I am. And it's a linear narrative of my time expressing what it is that basically this residency is. Um, that's the subjective nature of it. Like talking about the most fundamental things, about feelings, um, you know, where I'm at, what I'm doing, um, the exploration, the process. Um, it's almost jaunted in a sense of like, you have this presentation, but you also have this, but I think the writing and the words and everything like that so it's always kind of like been balancing to the narratives. Um, and that's one of the things that I've always been cognizant about in my work is like, you know, some people don't. Like I, I just was recently watching a presentation. Um, something It's just like, boom, this is their work. And we don't go beyond that, right? Um, mm -hmm. And this is what we're talking about. My work is my life. And, you know, I was just wrote a thing about like, you know, make your, you know, make your life a work of art. Um, and if you're going to do that, basically, your life to some extent is like, you know, boom, out there. Um, and I'm okay with that because it basically also like engages all these different aspects and things um, and questions, which I think basically resonate with people like for the people without a heritage culture or like, you know, are adopted or things like that. Like, it resonates. Um, just the question, even if you're not. Um, so I started on this project maybe uh, in, the gen in January or so, and it's basically photographing um, 100 strangers. And I'm about 35 through right now. And what it was, basically, you're doing all these flash portraits of people just that you man re randomly meet on the street. The reason I decided to do that is because, like, my flash game at the time sucked. Like I said before, like, I had kind of retired from the sense that I was, like, less focused on, like, you know, like, perfecting, like, you know, the craft and everything. But just making, like, these, like, but I said, hey, man, if I can make 
hundred flash images, just kind of like on the fly, you know, with people and everything like that. My game for when I have this bigger idea in mind will be a little bit more, you know, like, you know, you know, succinct. It'll be, mm-hmm. it'll be tighter, you know. Yeah. Um, so th- th- there's a reason why I was doing this, um, you know. So I almost called it practice, if you will. But meeting 100 strangers on the street is it has its merit in its own right, you know, because um, there's stories to tell, and I didn't want to do that. I, I, I didn't want to tell the stories of these people because, frankly, not it's not that I wasn't interested, but it just I, that's not where the narrative was. The narrative was to take a good image, make a flash, because this photo has a bigger design to it, um, you know, but. If it would be story based or narrative based and everything, then it's so much more in depth and requires so much more thought and process. And that's one of those things that's like sometimes you just can't give all that to, you know, something. Um, I mean, it's more about the image, but also perfecting the image as well, too, making a good representation. Uh, and also experimenting, you know, because sometimes you just get to that point where, like, you can only take like, so many different vantage points of, like, you know, these people. So you constantly have to, like, express yourself or express your ideas or your images in new ways that are not, like, you know, it's growth, I guess, in a way. But how many different ways can you take a photo of a person, you know? So this project, Artist Proof Number 6... Where are you in it right now? That's a good question. Well, a good chunk of the work I've already photographed. Um, spending time on the road this summer and fall is going to put me in touch with like you know more folks and photographing them and everything. Here's one of the the, the um, I guess. Things that I've, I like to do things with a, an authentic purpose, and they're less about like um, I don't know. I need to do this for for this reason, right? It's I want to do this because this is what I'm doing. Um, so when I spelled the kind of the, the uh, you know spelled out the definition of like kind of like what this project was and everything, it kind of convoluted things in a way, um, in a sense that like, how do I approach things now without coming across as like, oh, you're just doing this for, you know, this result, right? Not that people would think that, I think that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wanted to find myself in natural environments where basically like, boom, like, you know, you're, you're doing this for the sake of doing it. Because I love doing it. Like, uh, you know, when I walk into a person's environment, all the way back in like 2011, 12, like a person's personal like art, artistry space. And it seemed like, oh man, this is just so rich. Like, this is just like me all day photographing. Like, I was just like, perfect. You just do you. I'm just going to stand right over here and we'll do this. And that symbiotic relationship of them just being able to work and me being able to work and everything like that, it just, it just flows. Um, the biggest component on this is the writing. And I think when I was talking about like there's slight disconnect and everything, it's in the writing. So the writing is, again, a, a linear narrative of 
my time spending residency in the process itself and kind of like all the intangibles um, and none of the intangibles. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the writing has nothing to do with it, um, but it's just part of the process. Um, so my, my wall is covered in writings that I've done. I do all my writing um, on manual typewriters. I think I just, I just work better that way. And it's less about technical you know, precision, and it's more about getting your ideas out on paper. Mm-hmm. That's why all the, the ideas now are like, you know, fixed to the wall here is because now I can go back and I can look at all these ideas and kind of start tying things in together. So where am I at? Well, two months in, I'd say I'm about 20, 30% in maybe. Um, whatever is done or said here will be my best effort though. Um, whatever it is that I'm doing. Um, and I think particularly with the writing, if the writing congeals, or is that the right word? Uh, if the writing is cohesive uh, and pulls together, everything else will. It's the linchpin is the writing um, for me. So the images, uh, the images come natural to me now. Um, and I think the images are strong. Earlier in this conversation, you said that you have a lot of personas. At one point, it was a hitchhiker. What persona do you think you embody right now? <clears throat> creative. Um, you know, creative has always been kind of one of the things that I've... This, I think a large body of my work has just been creative uh, in the sense that what we're doing is... Just creating, 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 creating. And let's let the artists pull things together, right? Um, I, I've photographed stuff for the sake of photographing, just because we love photographing and everything like that. But the artists will come back and they'll look at it and they'll be like, all right, here's what we got here, you know? Like, here's where we can use it, here's where we can, you know, pull it together and here's where it works together. Um, you know, I've always found that it's always better to have the writing and the words and, and the photographs um, than not have them at all. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so, so to have that, the work and, their, and everything and to, to look back at the history, um, be it visual or written, is of importance. And again, that's why the work is strapped up on the wall here. It's like... I can look back now in writing and go back to that, you know, a year, two years, three years, and look at the words that I was putting together about experiences and about process and about art and about this and everything, and I can find value in there. Um, And I, you know, um, can find out, you know, really in depth how I was thinking. That's how I write, too. It's like, you know, like, just let it all lay out, you know? Whatever comes out is come, you know, comes out, and that's you know sometimes why I have to keep the door locked here at the C lab because a little bit, you know, a little bit too personal, you know. Um, but it's part of my process, um, and I, I'll look back and I'm like, why are you taking these images? Like, you know, it's because you take images, and I'm like looking at them like, right. I'm glad I have these images. Like, I mean, I'd much rather have these images than not have these images. That's it on that, I think. 
<laughs> well, Charles, you know, that does it for my questions. I know you're super busy right now. So, you know, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Absolutely. Hey, I want to thank you for uh, having me on. Um, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I hope what I've said is, you know, made some degree of sense. But again, like, I mean, it is what it is. So I'm going to let it stand on that. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors.